This episode is brought to you by HP+. In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are. Even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh, that is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. This episode is brought to you by PayPal. These days, choices are everywhere. Like, for instance, the milk in your coffee. Would you like it from a cow? A nut? A tree? Everyone wants options. And now your customers have a new option in the way they pay. With PayPal in person. Just generate your unique QR code in the PayPal app for them to scan. And start accepting PayPal in person today. Learn more at paypal.com slash us slash get QR code. Welcome to the Washed Up Evil Podcast. Today we welcome Mr. Frank Turner, also known for his time in Million Dead. Truly an honor to have you on the podcast. Thanks for taking the time. Um, it's a, it is a great pleasure. I do a lot of interviews, but uh, and it's rare for me to look forward to them. But I actually, I, I'm, well, we're going to get into this. But it, um, emo, in the old sense of the word, was a massive part of my musical upbringing, and in something I don't actually talk about all that often. Well, I was looking for in the bunch. I was like, all right, I don't want to cover stuff he's already covered, and you really, yeah. you sort of t- touch on it, but then I don't think. I don't. I don't. Interviewers don't go yeah. that deep or yeah, realize yeah. the connections. Well, also, I mean, I'm a, because of. I mean, look, we're diving right in the deep end here. Because of what happened to the word emo and what it sort of turned into meaning something that to me was very different from what it meant when I first came across it as a concept. It's. I kind of can't be asked to explain that every single time that the word comes up in conversation, so I generally avoid it. Yeah. Um, and I guess you know, I, I spend a lot of time talking about growing up listening to punk rock music, but I always feel that like. You know, to me, emo was a subdivision of punk rock, and you know, I think of Get Up Kids as being a punk band essentially, um, or at least they're, they're sort of under that umbrella in my head. Maybe yeah. that's right, maybe it's wrong. I don't know. But that, so I, I kind of, um, yeah, that's probably why it doesn't sort of get mentioned all that much in public. But it is definitely, uh, it was a huge thing for me. That's great. No, I mean, obviously, the personally getting into it, like music-wise, like what was that? What was that person? What was that moment that turned you? Because <laughs> well, you could turn the arena way, but yeah, you turned yeah, yeah, yeah. left. Well, and being in England too was yeah. different as well. It was. It was very. I didn't know anybody who. Uh, okay, basically the deal was, um, I was at school. Um, I was at this really weird exclusive school that I didn't like very much. Um, and there was. I had two friends who, we the three of us were actually a band together, and we were kind of. Pretty much social outcasts who listen to punk rock records, and initially it was you know the Clash and then No Effects and Descendants and that kind of thing. And um, I remember that we got into um, 
uh, ordering uh, stuff from mail order catalogues because this is all pre music being on the internet kind of thing we're talking this is like 96 97 kind of time like what what catalogs were um, well initial records it was a big one Perfect. although that kind of came a little later actually because initially um initially lol uh but <laughs> we are uh, because basically we kind of we sort of found the underground hardcore scene in the uk which is based around a label called household name records um which is still running and lil is still a good friend of mine i'm pleased to say um but uh basically um and, and that was at a time when, i mean and this is the thing remember distros yeah, yeah you go you to know, a show and, and there'd be a guy with a suitcase with a distro and that just doesn't exist anymore like <laughs> at all and I used to love distros and little, little household name at the time was kind of 50% label 50% distro so we picked up a few bits and bobs off him and then um, and basically the way that it generally worked is one of the other guys was a bit more kind of well off than the rest of us, should we say? Because um, it was expensive. Yeah, and well, and the thing is, and but I mean, you know, to his credit, he would basically we would sort of collectively consult on what records we wanted to get, and then and then we get them. And it was you know that beautiful age where you get a you get a catalogue and you read the descriptions or you read a review in Fractiozine, which was the zine in the UK at the time, and you'd essentially that's how you decide whether or not you're going to spend your money on music because mm-hmm. there was no MySpace or YouTube or whatever to check this stuff out. So I remember very distinctly there was one day where we got a package arrived. Um, that had, and I remember I'd seen the word emo around, and also sort of melodic hardcore as a term was slightly confusing to me at that time. Um, I remember that the first record I bought that had been described as melodic hardcore in a catalogue was Millencolin. So that oh, was my that was my benchmark for what melodic hardcore was. Whether or not that was right is, yeah. a, is an interesting debate. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I had that, and then. Um, Basically, the word emo was kind of sort of floating around the edges of this stuff. And again, it's pre-Wikipedia as well, so it wasn't like there was anyone we could ask. Yeah. We didn't really know anybody who knew about this stuff. So, we, um, uh, there was one day we ordered a batch of records, and I remembered really distinctly that one of them was a compilation CD of Spanish crust bands, um, and one of them was the first Boy Says Fire record, The Day the Sun Went Out. And they Fuck, arrived, yes. and we sat in the room, and we put on the Spanish crust one first, and it was bollocks um, and I remember we sort of sat there and, and that was the thing about that because you, you'd a fair amount of money you'd sit through spend. the whole thing and yeah and, and if it was shitty if you made a bad decision then it was just kind of like oh bummer do you know what I mean like we just yeah. spent 15 quid yeah. on a 20 track CD of utter toss and sort of sub-discharge <laughs> nonsense um, I should add incidentally that I love Discharge they're a fantastic band but there's a lot of fans who copied them badly anyway um, so we were there and then and I remember we put on the day someone out and we knew that it was an emo call record and it was sort of a point of interest and the thing about that record is the first two songs on that record are both quite kind of standard kind of 90s um, slightly metallic hardcore and I remember thinking yeah this is pretty cool and the third um, track uh, oh God! I could lie yes. here. Well, we'll get it. Yeah, <laughs> that one. When that kicked in, I remember just turning around, looking at Chris, and going, "What the hell is this?" And and quite. I mean, I don't want to be too far at my own ass, but like, I remember we'd been discussing, you know, how we were into sort of sick of it all, and we were into kind of Descendants and stuff. And and I guess you know, I we also the guest at the time was listening to kind of the Bends by Radiohead and stuff like that. And it was like, wouldn't it be amazing if there was some way of kind of mashing those two kind of ideas of the sort of aggression on the one hand um, and the the melody on the other hand? And then it was like we heard that, and it was like, fuck, someone's done it already. And that was just a huge that record. It's to this day one of my favorite albums. And um, I must have listened to that record about a hundred thousand times, like over and over again. And you know, nowadays it's a little kind of naive, I guess would be a polite way of putting it in places. Like, um, 
uh, it definitely slightly strays into the kind of almost sounding like you're about to cry when you're singing kind of yes. territory. But uh, but fuck it, it's still a really good album, you know. And uh, and that that was the, that was the kind of epicenter record for me. I thought they were going to be that band that was going to break. I was like, wow, they've got they put together the hardcore part, but they're singing yeah. and it's melodic and it's catchy. But it it was that it was the bands right after them that kind yeah, of took. I, yeah. True. The other thing as well, and I want to be circumspect on what I'm saying here because I, I don't want to be disrespectful of them as a band, full stop, and also Nathan, who I vaguely know, is a nice guy. I felt like that first record is kind of qualitatively different from their others in the sense that it has this kind of discordant, almost jazzy, melodic quality to it. Like, there's a lot of kind of weird discordant notes in it and I felt that chaotic like, even yeah and and when they and melodically speaking when they went forward from there it got a little bit more just kind of run of the mill melody to me and, and it, I felt like something got lost I never really was into the, that as into anything else they did off that first album which makes you sound like a total hipster but it, I mean it's true no but, at, I mean? but in that moment that's the record that connected that's the record that someone yeah, gave right, you or totally. you got and said holy crap this did, now did that open up Completely. Well, after that happened, basically we tweaked the email with something that we need to know, know more about, and um, and again, and the, you know, like I say, this is what that's all that emo meant at the time to me was essentially hardcore bands that had melodic sections, and and it had nothing to do with diagonal haircuts and eyeliner and suicidal and self pity and all that kind of shit, you know, um, which all came later and. I still can't quite get my head around what happened there and who's responsible for it. I mean, that's why I do the podcast. Yeah, like yeah, I, yeah, I try yeah. and figure out, like, there's these moments that it turned and where yeah. I was like, wait a minute, you're not talking about Elliot and yeah. you know, Mineral, you're talking about X band, X, Y, and Z that everyone knows that I've repeated yeah. a million times. Like, wh- what happened? Yeah, 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 totally. But anyway, so, uh, yeah, I basically we went off the deep end at that point. And, um, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I guess... The bands that stand out for me personally from that time would be um, uh, Gallup Kids. First Gallup Kids record, Four Minute Miles, is a masterpiece to my mind. Um, love that record a lot. Uh, uh, and then, well, you know what? I'll, I'll leave the next one I was going to say to last because we're going to talk about that one for a while. Um, uh, you know, Chrissy Front Drive were cool. Um, uh, How did you find out about them? All through distros and and mainly mail order catalogues. Um, I remember I got Righteous Spring because somebody told me that they were the first team in my band, so I went about that. I have to admit, it's not a record I've ever really listened to all that much because it doesn't do massive for me. I'm a huge Fugazi fan, but um, uh, Righteous Spring was always a bit like it was kind of like one of those records I bought because I kind of thought I should. And sort of, I like, actually had to buy. I bought mine in DC. Like oh, I really? went to a DC <laughs> record store, right. bought Righteous Spring in Embrace, and the guy at the record store was like, "Nice." And I was like, mm-hmm. I was like, sorry, I have to kind of buy yeah. these records here. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, I agree that it, it's it. You can you can see or he, you hear what's kind of out of it. But mm-hmm. I personally don't go back to it as much just because that wasn't my time period. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. Um, but yeah, Elliot. Um, what was the band that was was it Falling Forward? The band before Elliot. Yeah. Um, you turn the lights out on me. You turn the lights on the fires. Chris Higdon should um, should be in a mansion somewhere. Like he wrote so many couch. hooks, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> first Jimmy Eat World record, which um, uh, again, all of this is making me sound like such a hipster because I mean, I, I, I think Jimmy Eat World are a fantastic band, but I think that actually the um, the EP, the Lucky Denver Mint EP, is always going to be my favorite yes. Jimmy Eat World release. That that's such a fantastic record. Um, uh, so there was that. There were there actually well. 
I'm trying to I'm trying to organize my thoughts here. I'm getting excited about all of this. <laughs> um, uh, Cross my heart was great. I used to that yes. a lot. Um, but the, one of the biggest ones for me was Mineral, um, and I remember getting and serenading. I actually got and serenading first, and then got paraphernalia afterwards. And that record, to this day, I actually think an awful lot of my thinking about music and, and really? arrangement is influenced by that particular album. Particularly, I, I think that the drum, this is quite geeky, the drum sound on that record is the best drum sound I've ever heard in my life. And it's Mark Trombino record, and I really would love to record with Mark Trombino um, one day. I mean, he went on and did a lot of very successful records and ceased to be a cheap person to work yeah. with, I think, you know. But that, that, the drums on that record sound fantastic, the guitars sound amazing. It sounds um, new. Yeah, today. It, it just it's kind of it's like the just the uh sound of, of drums to me. It's uh, not the only reason I like the record, but like that. And I, rem- I mean, I remember at the time, and this is going to make me sound like a total sad but it's true. I was so obsessed with N Serenading. I actually, and the thing is, I had a cassette copy of it because my buddy had ordered it from say some vinyl, and then I taped it off the vinyl. And I hand wrote out the lyrics to the entire album on pieces of paper and photocopied them, and then I gave the tape with the handwritten lyrics to a number of friends of mine, and said, "You have to listen to this." We would have been friends. Yeah, yeah, and it was just like, <laughs> you know, and uh, I mean, I played a mineral song um, at that show in Austin on this tour because I'm doing this thing on this tour of trying to play regional covers, so I did a cover. Oh no way! Yeah, I covered GJS in in uh, in Austin. Um, and then you know, and then was Chris there. Yeah, Chris was there. Yeah, which was awesome. Um, Chris, incidentally, Chris. Um, so he went. Yeah, I know he went on and he did the Gloria record and then Zookeeper, both of which are fantastic. Um, and then what was the band that the other guys from Mineral did? Oh, um, they had that. Oh, um, I'm blanking. The pa- uh, Pop Unknown. Pop Unknown, thank there you. There you go, Pop Unknown. Yeah. Great uh, hooks? Yeah, great hooks. Great record. I felt like it... I mean, I don't want to sort of say that Mineral was just about Chris because I don't think it was at all, but I felt like there was a certain something lacking from that Pop Unknown stuff. Um, I used to, Me and my friends used to sit around and play... Um, no, I can't remember the title of the song. The first track on the first um, Gloria Record EP. This town has no feelings. I'm always like track one, track four. Up <laughs> the middle of October, and you think there'd be a nice cool breeze by now, but you'd be wrong. Great song. We used to sit around and sing that song all the fucking time. Um, anyway, Chris, uh, this is. I'm going to try and tell a kind of PC version of this story because um, I'm pleased to say that I'm now a clean person but I didn't used to be I used to have my issues with drugs and I actually met Chris at a house party in Austin whilst kind of doing bad things in the bathroom like um and was this Zookeeper's era for yeah yeah this is like 2008 probably yeah um yeah I used I used to be pretty messed up essentially um and but yeah I ran into Chris kind of in a kind of party in context which was really weird because it was just kind of like first of all there was this guy and he was like oh yeah I used to be in a bunch of bands or I'm in, I'm in, a, I'm in a band and I said oh, what was the name of the band he said oh, I was in a band called Mineral and I went fuck you <laughs> what and he was like yeah and uh, we ended up hanging out for an evening and kind of getting wasted together That's awesome. which was really fun and kind of a surprise because I kind of figured I mean you know one of the things about Mineral is that they were, they were a pretty Christian band which you know I mean I'm, a, I'm an atheist so that's not really my thing but then who gives a shit? The music's incredible, um, and indeed, I would say the lyrics are incredible. You know, he writes in a very moving way about Christianity. Yeah. You know, um, but uh, but it, I would not the kind of person I would expect to meet 
there and then. Um, <laughs> I really hope this doesn't sound Chris in any way. I'm sure he'll be fine about it. He's he's also in a much better place these days. But um, we yeah, so we hung out a few times, and he he was in London touring solo. And uh, we hung out there, and um, actually one of my friends who I'd given the handwritten tape to, I had this night where I was away on tour, and Chris was in London, he was like, do you know anyone I can stay with? So I called up my friend Chippy, and I said, what are you doing tonight? And she said, nothing, and I went, cool, Chris from Mineral's going to be at your front door in about half an hour. Yes! And she was like, fuck you, <laughs> no he isn't. And I was like, yeah, yeah he is. Anyway, so, um, but yeah, so, and then, but anyway, back to the music. Mineral, yeah, just that, there's something about, I, I actually, I think that I quite consciously... Um, in the back of my head, the way that Chris sings on Mineral Records is kind of how I sing, in a way. It's kind of again, it's like my uh, singer in a band voice. Yeah. In a way. There's this like this sense of urgency and I don't know, just it, yeah. I, that's what I loved about his lyrics and, yeah, the, and there's, delivery. There's a desperateness to it, and there's also, I mean, he pushes himself to the top end of his register, which is something that I do as well. Um, and 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 I and just kind of never really thought about it. I just always did it because Chris did, and that yeah. was my favorite record, basically. Wow! So so that was all the big thing. The next thing we should talk about. I look at this. I'm leaving That's leaving fine. the interview. Yeah. <laughs> I have questions, but go. Well, go well the, the other thing I was going to talk about was was the UK thing because basically, I mean, if emo was an underground thing here, it was at this period of, in in history. It was like so underground. I mean, so underground and barely existed in the UK, like um, and. Uh, I mean, mo- most people didn't know what the word meant, like, um, and, I mean, at the time, the hardcore scene in the late 90s and the hardcore scene in the UK probably comprised no more than about 500 people nationwide. I mean, it was so small. you do a tour and you would do London, Norwich, Peterborough, Leeds, and probably South Wales, and that was a UK tour, and those were the only towns that had enough people who would go to a hardcore show kind of thing. It was so hand-to-mouth. Um, and so all the shows would be a mix of metalcore bands and tough guy bands and straight edge bands and then kind of like drunk metal bands and then a handful of email bands in particular um, a band called Spy vs Spy who I to this day think are just unimpeachably brilliant like they were so fucking brilliant that first EP they did was just like nothing else and it, and, and I mean it, Easily as good as Braid, mm-hmm. if not better, you know. And 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 they came from the UK, and that was really exciting to me at the time. And I went to see them loads. And actually, the second gig I ever, well, first gig I ever played was opening for Poisonous Fire because Lil from House oh, of wow. was putting them on in their first UK tour. And me and the two other guys in the band basically tag team phone called Lil like three times a day until he finally went for fuck's sake and do twenty minutes at the start of the set. <laughs> um, what 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 year uh, was that? That was. 97 I'm pretty sure maybe 98 I can't so so the day the sun went out Eric. yeah 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 totally oh, and, like, awesome. and, and I interviewed I had a zine at the time and of I interviewed yeah yeah totally <laughs> it was called Paper Cuts it was the worst thing ever and if anyone finds a copy you will be killed by ninjas um, but uh, yeah I interviewed uh, Nathan that day which I was really excited about and basically just completely fanboyed at him and nerded out incredibly hard um, and then I, at the time it, I mean and in the way that things are more intense when you're a kid than they are when you're older I genuinely don't think I'll ever be as excited as I was at that show I was like I was in very heaven um, uh, so yeah so, so and then, there, there was there was I was I, I always thought hardcore had I mean like Alexis would go over there yeah but that's like, a little later was, it was later then so that's you're saying 97, 98 was still yeah well and I mean I guess Sick of It All would play but I get, they were sort of essentially considered the metal band really in terms of kind of domestic hardcore, I'd like to say Household Name was, at the time, as far as I was aware, there was the only game in town. There was also the scene fracture that was really important to the scene as well. Um, 
and it sort of grew a bit over time. I remember there was a bit more going on by about 2000, 2001. Then, well, and then, so I was going to say, yeah, the second gig I ever played was opening for Spider vs. Spider, which was a huge deal for me, and they did a reunion show not so long ago, and I went down, and it was incredible. Um, and then there was, I remember there was a split CD that someone put out that had a band called Sun Factor, who are English but had an American singer, a band called Babies 3 from Margate, and another band, and it's really remiss of me not to remember what the third band were called. <laughs> That's actually going to really bother me. <laughs> Should we pull out the internet? Uh, I, you know, I would be amazed if it was on the internet, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, but yeah, so that, that was kind of a release. That was like, this, as, again, as far as I was aware, that was kind of the first UK emo release then, and Spy vs. Spy, putting stuff out. Um, subjugation records from Leeds were doing stuff, I remember that. And then... Um, was it connect- Did it feel like a community? I mean, like, this is actually one of my questions. It was like... I talk to a band from Midwest, so if I talk to Bob from Braid, we kind of talk about that, or if it's yeah. Mike Kinsella, West Coast had a different thing, East yeah. Coast, South, you kind of, you sometimes connected if you toured, but there, in the UK, were there subsets, or was it no. small enough where it was one? Yeah, it was small, it was small enough, both because the UK is a small country, and also because there were so few people involved in this, but like I say, there were no, there weren't really any like emo shows, there were there were hardcore shows that would have emo bands on the bill. Which is what it was, I thought that's what it happened, that's how I got into it, Yeah, I'd go totally. see a hardcore band and there happened to be karate playing. Right, or yeah, oh whoever. my god, one of the fucking greatest bands of all time, Karate, incidentally. Sorry, after we can, we can turn off and I can help you yeah, out. But exactly. dude, the Karate... I remember like, seeing them at 93 Feet East in, so for, in about 2000, <laughs> I want to say, and it was one of the single most sublimely perfect musical experiences of my life. That was my first interview I ever did for my shitty zine in high school. Oh, really? They Amazing. Opened, for, they opened up for Fugazi in this town that I grew up in, and they did an email interview for me. It was their first one, the first interview they ever did. Yeah. They sent me their 7-inch. Amazing. And I was just like, enamored. I, I, did, I wrote Guy Pichotto an email with a bunch of questions in for my zine, hoping against hope that he might run back and answer did he, and he, he did he absolutely did so uh, I emailed him to be Gipi when I was a kid I think I probably asked him a bunch of stupid bullshit I can't even remember now oh my I, I probably have I think I uh, scanned it in at one point it's ridiculous yeah like, I mean what, what, would a, what would a 17 year old ask a yeah, band that yeah right, totally totally <laughs> but yeah no karate were incredible that cancel sing EP is, is something else like, but all in fact they're a band that I never never kind of I, I love everything they did equally like incredible Stuff. But yeah, in the UK, I mean, I, you know, people generally knew each other, I think, because um, I was, okay, the next part of the story was I was in a band called Knee Jerk. Knee Jerk's aim in life was to be, I guess, a bit like um, Until Your Heart Stops Here Converge. Oh, sorry, Cave-In, I should say, excuse me. I just um, talked about that record today for like 45 minutes. Oh, okay, yeah, so, yeah. yeah that's, that's an interesting record to me. I have mixed feelings about that one as an album. I think that it was kind of... It's a tiny bit too intellectual for its own good. Is my feeling about that album? But the breakdowns. Yeah, well, no, I, you know, and you know, um, <laughs> Does that ju- ju- Juggernaut was one of the, the fucking best hardcore songs of all time. But like, but but I just feel like as a whole record, it's a bit too clever for its own good. Do you know what I mean? It's a bit more head than heart yeah. to me, which is not true of all of Cave and stuff. You know, and I just felt that that record felt a tiny bit studied somehow. Anyway, that's a whole other conversation. Ninja, I think we called ourselves an emo core band quite consciously. Um, we did. But this is there's some about to be some cringing going on here because basically, in fact, pre Boys That's Fire, the three of us had another guy. We had this Chinese guy on bass, and we were sort of a pop punk band called Badger Doritos for reasons that are infinitely too stupid to talk about. <laughs> but we then then we got Boys That's Fire, and it was just like change. Um, and the 
Baseball quick because he thought it sounded like the Smashing Pumpkins. It was his, it was his ultra cuss. He was wow. like, it sounds like the fucking Smashing Pumpkins. We were like, fuck <laughs> you, man. Um, and then, yeah, so we changed our name to Knee Jerk, and then we were three piece. So I ended up playing bass because we didn't know anybody else who wanted to be in the band. Um, and we, um, and, uh, and we would, yeah, we wanted to be an emo call, emo call band, and we recorded. Um, we recorded a first we called it an album I mean it had 12 songs and we recorded it in like one day in a studio in Hampshire near where I grew, lived grew up whatever and um, and it was t- I mean there's a couple of melodic ideas in it that's going right, but it's pretty intensely cringeworthy generally speaking the <laughs> album was called and this is I'm going to die inside while I say this out loud the album was called Helpless I Cry <laughs> wow you guys really went for it <laughs> yeah and uh, it was just yeah, there was a lot of songs about feelings. <laughs> um, but so we did that. Then we did a split EP with a band called Abjure, who were a kind of technical hardcore, technical metalcore kind of band in, in the sort of Converge vein. I should add, Converge were at the time, and indeed to this day for me personally, a very important band to me at around this time as well. Converge completely blew my world apart when I came across them. Um, the first record? Uh, yeah, I mean, actually, I think the first record of those I got was um, When Forever Comes Crashing, ah. which I, to this day is a record that gives me the heebie-jeebies. There's something really spooky about the way that record sounds. It's, it's kind of it sounds like it's kind of being piped down to the bottom of a well. I don't know. It's weird. Anyway, uh, so Nijo, yeah, and we and we and we did that. Then we did a split with Abjure, who were a technical metal band, who are friends of ours from London, and we did our first UK tour together uh, in summer '98, and then. Uh, we did it two weeks and nobody came to any of the shows and we all got ill and lost <laughs> loads of money and it was great and we had a racist guy driving the van that was really really odd because he was older than us and we were all scared of him we were all like 16 <laughs> um, very strange time um, and uh, oh yeah we played a show in um, Leeds at a squat called 120 Rats and it, uh, we sort of got jumped on a bill with um, End of the Century Party and Arsehole Parade who were over from Florida um, both of whom then broke up that night after the show in the car park when we were like oh my god what the (laughs) fuck is going on Um, so we did that and then uh, and then we did did a split EP with a duo called Don't Clap It Startles Me it's a very long and stupid reason for that title then uh, we did an album we actually um, scraped some money together and went and recorded with a guy called Dave Chang who's actually a reasonably well-established kind of underground metal producer, and we did this kind of concept album called *The Half-Life of Kissing*. That is, insane. I mean, looking back on it now, for me, it's an insanely pretentious piece of work in its way. But at the same time, I'm kind of impressed with myself for doing that shit when I was like 17, because it's essentially it's sort of a concept record. It's themed around like the surahs from the Quran and stuff, mm-hmm. and, and like it's got all these like seven, eight-minute-long songs on it. And we did this one thing where we took a TS. Elliot poem being read by Ted Hughes and cut it up and arranged the samples. There's a lot of electronic stuff on it because in the meantime we'd listened to Shape Punk's Come By Refuse and got really obsessed with that. But I still think we thought of ourselves as an emo band and it was still pretty emo in places. And we did, Nijek did I think three UK tours I seem to remember, two or three, and we did a whole bunch of like weekend shows. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, drive up to the, to the, the Woodhouse Community Centre in Leeds and play with a bunch of like <laughs> Belgian hardcore bands and then, then us but that worked then still yeah yeah totally, totally. like it wasn't like you had to sound yeah. this way yeah. with package tour yeah well okay now here's the next bit and again I want to be careful talking about this because I don't want to kind of um, blow my own trumpet too much basically there was a divide in the scene in the UK there was a very, there was like a fissure in the scene What what year was this? 2000, 2001, somewhere okay. around there, I want to say. There was a very definite split where all of a sudden there were just hardcore shows 
and there were just emo shows, and it stopped being a combined thing. Interesting. Um, I think by then there were enough people involved in it for that to sustain itself. Was one part of it, and you know it was a bit weird. You'd have guys in like you know um, basketball jerseys with X top hands beating the living fuck out of each other to tough guy stuff. There was a band called Beatdown Fury, I remember. And you ah, know, I wonder having, what happens at their shows. Yeah, and Beatdown Fury and and you know some factor being on the same bill was always yeah. a little kind of incongruous. Um, and then um, uh, yeah, the the other thing though that there was there was a, a degree of antagonism in which. Well, it happened around the same time an incident happened that involved me, which was basically there was a band called Knuckleduster from London, who, incidentally, for my money, at, in the late 90s and early 2000s, were unquestionably the best hardcore band from the UK, and I still listen to their records to this day. I think they're a fucking excellent band. They, um, they were... They weren't... At the beginning, they were quite sort of posicore, but they got a bit more into that whole sort of tough guy vibe as time went on. And, um... Basically, I got taken out by their singer at a Sick of It All show. Not deliberately, but he just kind of windmilled into me and completely fucked me up and a week later I was doing possibly my first ever interview and I mentioned this and basically I think I called him a macho idiot he then came down to an eject show and beat me up wow. which um, which really kind of proved my point I might add um, and a lot of people got kind of fucked off about it there was a fracture message board which went with the zine the fracture forums mm-hmm. very early like basic message board format and uh, there was a lot of kind of shouting it on there about it and we had trust kill and victory for those on the states so. right yeah same, yeah, same probably yeah. Thing, yeah and then basically i'm not i don't i don't i'm not claiming that that incident was the the moment when everything split in half but that was definitely at a time when i think people stopped going to each other's shows kind of thing um which i mean you know i remember at the time I mean, I'm not sure. I think it's partly a function of being younger and partly a function of, of the time. There was all the. You remember debates about more women in hardcore, violent dancing, straight edge versus veganism. Does, you know, hard line. Hard, yeah, exactly. Violent, straight edge, all that shit. We actually, there was a Nijuk song about violent, straight edge, which is the single most embarrassing song I've ever written in my life. Um, <laughs> uh, but, um, and, uh, you know, there was all those debates, which at the time mattered to me so much. Hey, if you need an exciting new record to look forward to, Iodine Recordings, the Boston-based record label, is releasing the 30th anniversary edition of Quicksand's classic debut, Slip, on vinyl. This is the album's first time on vinyl in over a decade with completely remastered sound. This deluxe gatefold edition with Slipcase comes with a poster, a deluxe LP, and a 64-page hardcover book. The book chronicles the album's history and has commentary from Anthrax, Hole, Rise Against, Youth of Today, Papa Roach, and more. Experience this iconic post-hardcore record in a brand new way with the 30th anniversary edition of Quicksand Slip. Available for pre-order now and in stores on March 31st, 2023. And since they returned in 2021, Iodine Recordings has released almost 20 albums to date from bands like Stretch Armstrong, The Darling Fire, One Line Drawing, Jerome's Dream, Sorker Fire, and more. Head on over to iodinerecordings.com for more and follow them on Instagram at Iodine Recordings. And I remember kind of writing this sort of long post on the Factory Forum about what a fucking shame it was that people had to go their own way and we could have had a unified scene and all this shit. With the benefit of hindsight, I'm not sure I really care. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I but mean, in the moment. Whatever. But yeah, I was I was bothered about it at the time. Uh, by the way, I, I I never ever talk about all this shit in interviews and I'm really enjoying this. Hell <laughs> yeah.
I remember saying this to a million people about, to me, emo was supposed to be more intense than hardcore in a certain way, you know, rather than less. It wasn't emo. supposed to, Yeah, right. I mean, actually, yeah, two other bands I should mention, American bands that I would adore. One of my very favorite emo bands ever was I Hate Myself. Um, and I had this really funny moment um, a few years ago. I was doing a show in Florida, and the in-house sound guy, somebody told me he was the drummer from I Hate Myself, and I slightly wigged out and got my photo taken with him. I think he thought I was fucking with him at first, because he was just like, no one cares about no, the band. Yeah, no um, and I was just like, I fucking care about your band. <laughs> that song, Less Than Nothing by I Hate Myself, is like probably... It's one of my favorite emo songs of all time, and I used to play it to people because the vocals on the chorus are so fucking harsh and intense. And I'd say to people, "This is what emo is. It's not soft. Fu- it's not softer than hardcore. It's not yeah. the light option in in the hardcore world. It's supposed to be fucking more intense, you know." But them and then Saisha as well were a band. Which one? Saisha. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Saisha, yeah. Saisha, 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 yeah, yeah. Saisha, who weirdly, I had this thing. I was working um, when I left school. I moved to London and. Um, Actually, well, here's another part of the story. The three of us in Nijok decided that when we left school, we were going to spend a year making a go of it and like doing DIY European squat tours and all this sort of shit, um, putting out our own records and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then, so I made the arrangements to not go to university straight away and all this sort of thing. And then, uh, and then the band broke up like in <laughs> August. And it was just like... Well, Fuck. I guess I know what I'm doing. Yeah, now. <laughs> so I went. I moved to London and did a bunch of, um, you know, was working kind of crappy temp jobs and office jobs and shit. And um, and uh, a good good friend of mine called John used to work at UCL, the University of London. Um, and I used to work at. A, I was here. I was working at a shop at the time, quite nearby. And um, and we'd meet up for lunch every day in the university cafe because it was subsidised and I looked like a student, so they let me in, and it was a cheap way to get lunch. <laughs> now. Um, for, and we did that for a pretty much an entire year and for the second half of that year John's friend B- Billy came and hung out with us and he, he was an American guy who John knew and we'd shoot shit and we'd talk about music and it was all good and then Billy left in sort of May or whenever it was and um, uh, to go back home because he finished thing and the next day week I was saw John and I was like oh where's Billy and he went Billy from Saisha and I went wait what uh, and he went uh, he was like, oh, he's come back to America. And I went, no, what? Wait, the roll singer. back. You, what? <laughs> and he was like, oh, yeah, he was a singer in Saisha. And I was just like, you mean I've just been hanging out with a singer in Saisha for fucking four months? And I didn't know, <laughs> you dick. Um, so, yeah, oh, that was a weird one. Uh, yeah, but I, I, again, Saisha, Saisha, I don't know how to pronounce that fucking name. Um, that, there was a kind of, that. that's pretty quintessentially em- screamo to me. Do you know what I mean? It was that kind of. Melodic but fucking intense. I know? always thought oh, this band Frail from Philadelphia. Mm. If you haven't heard them, um, they're one of these ones where you're at. It's like this. You feel like it's everything's breaking while yeah. they're playing. Is singing. There's a moment and also a Sleepy Time Trio. Oh yeah, I know Sleepy Time Trio. Um, yeah. They were like just got to see them a bunch and just you know like like kind of engine down mm. that sort of yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, moments of. Everything hell. Oh, the the floor is going to open up. Yeah, yeah. That incidentally reminds me of something, which is that I remember um, when I first started touring in the states. Um, you know, the first few tours I did over here, like, were real kind of DIY stuff, and generally just me and my guitar, quite often in a car and the van driving around French bank shows. And um, and I remember um, getting to because sort of sleep on people's floors and stuff. And uh, one guy's house. Where the fuck was that? But basically, he'd saved every gig poster of, of, of every gig he'd ever been to. And the thing is, all of these American bands are talking about here. I never saw any of them live because none of them ever came to the UK because it just didn't happen. Yeah, logistically, right. yeah. Uh, and I remember getting into his house and just wanting to fucking strangle him because it literally... They had shows on, posters of shows on the walls for where it was like 
four of my favourite bands who I never saw live playing together. You know, the, the bill would be like Christy Front Drive, Mineral, Braid, Jimmy World. And, I, and it would be like, I, fuck, man. <laughs> like, you know, I, I, I've seen Jimmy World, obviously, now, but like, I'd never seen any of those fucking bands. There was that, and then also, I mean, going on, this was the sort of slightly parallel music taste for me at the time. They, there was one year that it was, I remember the bill was like Neurosis, Caven, Converge, and Botch. On yes. one bill, and it was just like, what? I'm not sure I could have handled that. I would have been so fucking excited about that show. <laughs> you know? Um, As I was listening to Botch yesterday. Love it. Oh, <laughs> fucking great, great band, Botch. Um, I booked the first Botch UK tour with really? a friend of mine. Yeah, and we did a terrible job, and they didn't come back. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, we really fucked it up quite badly, actually. So you were, I mean, it's interesting The, you know, a lot of people that are on this, like, they come from the hardcore side, they've got maybe some indie, but they got into emo, and it kind of, maybe they were into post-hardcore lo- for a little bit, but then it, it turned into emo. Yeah, yeah. And what it, it was labeled as. Mm. Um, and that sort of hardcore mentality of you picking someone up off the floor, yeah, you're yeah. going to the merch table after, like, you yeah. seem to have kept that and yeah. that's something I noticed I was like alright he's been to a show before like you yeah, went, yeah. you didn't go to just concerts oh, yeah, there's yeah, no yeah, offense yeah. it's just like that was what Abs- you did absolutely well you know that's an interesting thing because one of the things I always find is like you know the live shows that we do they're, they're energetic right but I mean it's not particularly out of the ordinary for me and it's kind of funny because I just find that for people you can just tell straight away if people grow up listening to hardcore and, and or emo or certainly the underground version of it you can just instantly tell because it's people go Jesus Christ man this like, show's so fucking intense it's so energetic and I go not really not if you grew up watching Sick of It All play do you know what I mean and and indeed Boy Sets Fire or that's watching just, Converge play yeah that's just how shows go yeah. that's what you do when you do a show you move around that much and you get that sweaty and, and you know I don't consider what we do live to be particularly remarkable from that point of view but it's just you know if you've got particularly being from the UK because the thing is when I was a teenager Britpop was everything and I hated it I had a homemade t-shirt that said shit pop and got beaten up at school for wearing it and like and you know there was that whole Blurbo Oasis thing and I took great pride in hating both bands um you know and it, actually funnily enough retrospectively I did miss out on quite a lot of good music because I was so militantly not going to be into yeah. what people around me were into but like you know I've got friends who kind of grew up I remember like um like my friend Dave is one of my best friends actually my flatmate now but when he he would come and see either like Million Dead shows he would just be like I just can't really handle it I just don't really know what's going on and it's like I know dude that's because you grew up going to see Shed 7 do you know what I mean and like and cast yeah exactly you know and there's a, there's a qualitative difference between the two and not just in the intensity of the shows but also like you're saying just that idea of the idea of the, the music is supposed to have a sense of community to it and yeah you look out for each other you make sure everyone's having a good time But and it's supposed to be intense and the pit can get crazy and all the rest of it but it's not it's not like a metal show where people just literally beat the living fuck out of each other. Yeah. You know, there's a kind of community spirit to it. And yeah, you go into the most table and you check out the open bands. And also, as a band member, you don't fucking hide in the backstage room. You go hang out. You go watch the other bands from, from the crowd. That's what yeah. you do. That's how shows go. And, um, you know, and I, and I hope that, that there's a sense of that extent in what I do now. Well, it's also, too, I mean, your communication, too, with the fans. Yeah. I, I just... Just it was just really funny. I was like, the, when I saw the Chris Simpson photo, I was like, everything's clicking because the way that you communicate is what would seem like if it was Rick Rodney from Strife talking on stage or who, or Rabies from Worlds, and you like, he's telling you something, and yes, some people were going to say bullshit. Yes, it was hardcore, and some people were, you know, um, uh, you know, you kind of talk but not walk. But at least you're trying, and it's this yeah. you're connecting and you're being really 
honest. It isn't behind this veil. It's not behind right. anything. Yeah, because that's the other thing. I mean, I think that, um, you know, there's. I, I've been criticised a number of times, particularly in the British press, for being unironic, which strikes me as a very strange thing to be criticised for being. I mean, it's like, oh, check that guy out. He means what he says. Well, okay. Yes, I do. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think, yeah, and there are moments when it's a, it can be a little kind of naive and, and all the rest of it. And But it's like, and that definitely comes from being into emo and hardcore. Absolutely, 100%. Just that idea of saying what you mean and meaning it and 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 saying it and being very, yeah, direct and honest and open. That's 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 what I learned from growing up with these bands. Do you know what I mean? It that's wasn't superficial. Do. It wasn't behind a music video. Yeah, well, it, was like, and it, it wasn't, it wasn't kind of, didn't have a, po- a poise to it and a kind of slightly odd like, tongue in its cheek and all that shit. Fuck off, man. I, you know, yeah. I never, you know, there's, I mean, I hate quoting myself, but <laughs> but I'm going to do it, so not that much, obviously. Um, there's, a, there's a line in um, in the song on the new record, Four Simple Words, where it's like, you know, um, uh, sex, drugs, and sins, like extra skins, but it's okay because I don't really mean it, you know, and it's it's a sarcastic line, obviously, and it's just that thing about just this whole thing of, what, and it's, it's why I spent my entire life rejecting the word rock star and that idea of, like, you know, this sort of persona I don't like the idea of personas you know what the fuck is a persona because the point is a musician isn't someone who comes out of the backstage a musician is somebody who vaults over the barrier at the front to get on a stage or indeed just walks because there isn't a stage in the basement that's what musicians are they're not fucking people who arrived in a limo who are staying in a fucking hotel they're the people who are actually sleeping on your floor later that night because they're on tour in a van and, and again you know, I hope that that is apparent in what I do no, I, I think it really does connect no, no, it's, it, it's, I, I'm just noticing it as someone, and it is. I, you can instantly tell if someone went to a hardcore show, yeah. or at least it just you can instantly. Yeah, um, it's pretty. It's pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> I had a roommate that was into Britpop, so I sort of got the history of oh, Britpop right, yeah, yeah, yeah. while I was getting him into right, like right, hardcore right. and emo. And stuff. Like I say, I do feel a bit bad about the Britpop thing because like I missed, I didn't really pay attention to Pulp, and I completely missed Gomez, who are now one of my favorite bands. Gomez was great. I love Gomez. <laughs> So that, do you know that song "You, Me, and Everybody"? No. Uh, it's a garment. It's kind of, I think it's kind of an album track, but it's it's. I think it's one of the more remarkable pieces of music that I know. I spend a lot of time listening to it and thinking about it and wondering how they did that. Yeah. Kind of thing. So. Now the thing that I always, the, starting the site in the late liberal mid mid two thousands, I started seeing a lot of press, and it wasn't U S based. It was a lot of U K based. Mm-hmm. Really latching on to the eyeliner, the hair, yeah, yeah. like. I was it was crazy how quick it was like yes those magazines are kerangs and those are just like you know so quick to pop mm. on those things being there were you seeing that and going like yeah. why are you yeah it, it was infuriating at the time because like I say no one knew what the, this. The, I think the thing that, that needs to be explained though that, I, that it always surprises a lot of people over here is that hard, no one knows what hardcore means in the UK as a style of punk rock no one knows who Black Flag or Dead Kennedys and Minor Threat are no one's heard of hardcore it's just not a thing do you know what I mean? Um, and I, I spent my entire childhood with people thinking I was into happy hardcore, as in the super fast Mickey Mouse vocal bullshit techno yeah. that I can't fucking stand. And, um, and you know, I'd say I'm into hardcore, and they're like, oh, happy hardcore. And I'm like, no, hardcore? What are you talking about? Hardcore punk? It's not really called that, is it? Yeah. Yes, it fucking is. You know, and, and it's just not a thing people know about. And, and the emo, even less so, prior to. And yeah, there was a particularly, there was like an, I remember there's an enemy issue, I think it was, or Kerrang, one or the other, where it was like a guide to emo or an explanation of what emo is, and it was really kind of facetious, and it was all about kind of, yeah, dyed black hair and all that and all this shit. Yeah, I was, and, that's probably when I had my. Blood yeah, and, I, and it I pissed me off so much at the time. And that, I mean, it pretty definitely, definitively right there is the day I stopped using emo to refer to any music that I liked, because it was like, I don't want to be associated with 
those kind of fucking haircut pop punk bands, basically, with with kind of Hollywood melodrama sort of slapped over the top of it like too much fucking foundation. You know, real awful shit. And and I guess I can see the sort of I can sort of see the causal family tree link of how you got from one to the other. You know, I think Get Up Kids and Jimmy Eat World were sort of transitional bands. And I say that with enormous respect for both, and love mm-hmm. indeed for both bands, because I, I think they're both excellent, excellent bands. But it was that um, pop tinge to it. Yeah, it, which, which you I think... You started to hear it on the radio, promising, and you were like, that could be on the radio. Yeah, yeah. If. Yeah, right, totally. And then suddenly it just all got sort of ironed out a little bit too much. And then, and I mean, and again, I sort of feel bad saying this to a degree, because I do think that they had their moments as a band, definitely. But I think My Chemical Romance was the kind of real, kind of like the fuck kind of moment you know what I mean because suddenly it was that was that the one that kind of was what one broke that, that was that was the breakthrough in my band in the UK I, w- I would say um, I mean Jimmy World to a degree as well because Jimmy World did start doing very very well 2001 um, I mean the middle was yeah um, although not quite as well as over here I don't think I don't know I'm not entirely sure about that actually but um, but yeah my chemical romance was huge and suddenly they were emo and that's what emo was it was and I mean you know that video they did which is shot like a Hollywood trailer which makes me want to claw my fucking eyes out because it literally to me just looks like a fucking marketing department laughing at small children handing over their lunch money fuck off like oh. yeah. um, and it, uh, and that's not to say that I don't like the song because I just think it's quite a good song but it's just that sort of approach to it it's just like yeah, it's not to my taste personally um, I mean it was to me that was pop punk yeah I mean basically you know Except, well, yes. Although the thing for me though is, the pop punk was was always a bit faster than that to me. Yeah, pop punk was exactly no effects. It was you know fat records. But yeah. then I started to see. I'm like, okay, this is fast. You're, yes, you got a little hardcore in there. Yeah. But it's it was still it felt like you yeah. guys that this is pop. Well, yeah, I guess pop. I mean that's the thing. I mean, what well, it's just slow pop punk. There you go. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> we have a new term, everybody. Yeah, mid paced pop, pop punk, <laughs> and it was just kind of like. But also, yeah, just that whole kind of... And in a way, it sort of became a parody of what, what earlier had been a sort of commitment to complete emotional honesty in music became this sort of parody of just kind of, like, people wearing eyeliner and saying they're sad the whole fucking time. And it was like, no, no, that's not... And it became a put-upon, which was the exact opposite of what it was supposed to be, yeah. which was open and honest. And, and I, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, I think that emo, the original emo, what we've been talking about this whole interview, could be accused of being a little bit humorless at times, you know, and perhaps a little kind of self-serious, taking itself a little too seriously. I think that's probably a fair cop. Yeah. Um, but but at the same time, there was there was a genuine kind of, like I say, yeah, commitment to being into emotional honesty in the middle of it. And, and to have that kind of degenerate into this whole kind of like one of my least favourite things which is people in their late 20s and early 30s writing songs about being at school fuck off it's dishonest do you know what I mean and, and like uh, and uh, yeah because they're, conne- they're trying to connect to yeah because they're trying to sell records to 17 year olds get fucked do you know what I mean like how unintegral could you possibly be <laughs> you want a textbook definition of selling out there we go anyway what about the? I mean what when did you see it what I guess the thing is the UK, you know, I felt a lot of it from there. The press was being so big over there, mm. and it really started to kind of filter here, yeah. where that okay, well, that's what this is. It's goth, it's emo, and yeah, yeah, yeah. these bands are sort of. Did you go under? I mean, a lot of these bands, I mean, hid. Yeah, <laughs> they yeah, were still yeah. putting out records. They were like hid, and now they're slowly kind of popping their heads yeah, out yeah. again. 
Well, I think the thing for me, like, so, I mean, in terms of my personal history, Knees Up Broke Up, I'd spent a year fucking around not really doing anything musically, and then joined a band called Million Dead, which featured Ben on drums, who had been in Knees Up as well. And, um, Million Dead, I think I thought of Million Dead being, a, at least in part, an emo band. Um, but it was interesting because Cameron, who was a guitar player in Million Dead, who was kind of probably, I would certainly on that first record, the sort of prime musical force, um, didn't know, didn't, he liked Fugazi, but other than that, he was into stuff like Von Bondi's and, you know, kind of like dirty guitar rock. Mm-hmm. And he thought the term emo was hilarious and or appalling, depending on <laughs> who you asked. And I, I spent a year trying to play him records that I thought he might like and never succeeded. Um, but, uh, but and, and, and in a way, the tension between what he was into and what me and Ben were into was one of the more interesting aspects of Million Dead musically, I think, because I feel like with the yeah the tug and pull between those two things brought us to an interesting place. But the other thing that happened musically, and this is a band that can't go unnamed in this discussion, was at the drive-in. Because at the drive-in, I don't I know, just had that note. Okay, there you go. At the drive-in, landed like a fucking bomb, uh, as far as I was concerned, and indeed most people into rock music in the UK. Um, that. In Casino Out, I'd been around and I was aware of their existence and I'd seen their name in catalogues and stuff, but I didn't own that record. Then Via arrived and I got Via and went. Unreal. Fuck. But not least because it was kind of. They were sort of. I'm not sure I think of them as an emo band. I think I think of them as a post hardcore band more. Yes. But like they, they kind of took what I think of as emo and pushed it a bit further. And it was a bit nastier in a way, like a bit more vicious. In a way that I liked a lot and still do. And then Relation Clown came out and everything, everyone went, Jesus Christ, this is the best band in the fucking universe. Although Terrible Live, I have to say, like just the whole stopping songs because of people having fun. Come on, really? There's a show I saw, there's, it was uh, Jimmy World at the drive in and Lazy Cane tour. Mm-hmm. And there's someone posted a video of Fahrenheit and it was. I don't remember it that good. Like, I was, right. you know, you kind of just, everything bleeds together, but there was a. I'd seen them off and on, and this was on. Right, and right. I think that's how they were. I, sometimes. I only saw them once, so maybe that's my thing. But they, but yeah, they um, they were, uh, they really kind of. I think. Well, I feel like that set Million Dead and an awful lot of other people off down a slightly separate path because post hardcore sort of became an acceptable term for people who had been doing emo before emo turned into goth. Essentially, this is so arcane. What we're talking about here is hilarious. And you could and you could sing. It was yeah. like singing and screaming, but yeah. it wasn't. Screamo yet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's more dissonant guitars, quicksand, all that stuff. Right, Million Dead definitely got called a screamo band a number of times when we were starting out, which was a term that I was fine with, but not everybody in the band was, kind of thing. And most people or knew what it meant, or knew what it, knew the context to it. Yeah, right. But then, well, they did and they didn't though, because then the the next thing happened is Million Dead started doing quite well in a sort of more mainstream rock circles kind of thing. I mean, you were touring with, like, like Funeral for a Friend, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, who were definitely an emo in the post-change sense of the word. And again, I say that with all the love in the world for Matt and the boys, and their first record will always be, have a special place It gets place requested all the time at Emo Night. Like, yeah, like, yeah. Well, and like, it's, it's also... It's connected to it. Yeah, absolutely. And Matt, Matt, in particular, who's the guy in the band I know the best, I should say. Matt definitely, he was one of the guys who actually used to send out Fracture Zine, and he was like, oh, awesome. he was definitely on the grassroots of that scene and knew exactly what he was talking about and what he was doing. But he, um, they, they, yeah, they slightly went in the sort of after the change emo kind of vibe yeah. to me. Um, but yeah, Million Dead Talk with them, and then, then all of a sudden we spent a lot of time telling people that we weren't an emo band because it was an association that we were uncomfortable with. And I don't think that we were, in either sense of the word, actually, at the end of the day. I think that was an influence on what we did. But I guess post-hardcore is probably a better term for yeah. who we were and what we were doing. 
And that was still 2005? That was still 2005. Um, I mean, it went off in a slightly weird direction because Cameron, the original guitar player, left the band after the first album and we got another guy in called Tom who had been in that band of Dewar who did the split with New Jack in the tour. So we'd known Tom for years anyway. Tom came in. Tom uh, Tom is a, one of the best guitarists I've ever been within 100 miles of. An incredibly talented guy. He's a strange dude in his own way. Everybody's a strange dude. I don't want to be rude to Tom. He's a, he's a nice guy. But um, he he's quite sort of... Um, quixotic with his music taste he'll be intensely into one thing for like a year and then suddenly intensely into another thing I remember he and I got super into grindcore together and then suddenly he was super into and this was when he joined Million Dead he was super into Failure and like Giant's Chair bands like that and that kind of the second Million Dead record kind of started veering off in that direction to a degree I think because of his influence which I'm not complaining about I'm not saying it's a bad thing but that was what happened then Million Dead broke up because we all forgot how to be friends with each other um, which sucked and I started playing on my own which is interesting I mean it's like it's interesting that that roots a lot of people do I mean prior Jim hasn't done it yet Jim (laughs) you know um, Chris Caraba I mean Further Seems Forever Vacant Andes there's been a lot of these things and uh, you know were you trying to go so far away from what it was or yeah. was it yeah you... definitely I mean I, th- I, I, I kind of I always feel like I want to be careful when I say what I say now because I don't want to again don't want to claim any pioneer status or anything because as you, you've already mentioned a number of people who did did this route before I did you know but each had their different reasons yeah yeah I mean the thing for me all, I'm, all, all it is is that there was certainly a moment of, I think it's kind of dying down now, a few years ago where fucking everybody who used to be in a punk band was suddenly doing a solo record and it got slightly kind of like this is sort of a bandwagon now and then and uh, first, I, I don't mind bandwagons. I, I always make me want to do something completely different. If everybody's doing one thing, I'm the kind of person who wants to go and do something else. But also, um, I don't know. It wasn't easy actually. And almost everybody only laughed when I told them what I was going to do after Million Dead broke up. I'd been thinking about it for a little while. And we did a farewell tour. We knew we were going to break up at the end of the tour, kind of thing. Um, so I'd had time to consider my options, and I started playing solo shows and acoustic guitar. And a lot of people, including like booking agents and management and stuff like that, just went. What the fuck are you talking about? You're an idiot. Oh wow! Um, yeah, and like really, like we're really down on what I did. Also, the other thing is that Million Dead in our last tour, we were doing sort of maybe like 500 people a show kind of level, and um, I went from that to playing to no one, like literally no one, on a number of occasions, and that was, you know, let's be blunt, it was a blow to my ego. It was not easy to handle. I was like, I was just fuck, to all yeah, these yeah, and now no one cares. <laughs> and you know, I just assumed that at least some people would go. And, and you know what and some people did I don't want to disrespect or forget those people there were a bunch of million dead fans who, who came along, along for the ride and I'm very grateful to them I am to this day but like it wasn't the same kind of numbers first London show I did was in the corner of a room in a cinema after million dead broke up I should say corner of a room at a cinema for a screening of a film about something I can't remember what now and I played and there was like two people there um, you know and it was kind of and I was like Playing, I'm mic'd up, I'm, you know, and it was just like fuck this. <laughs> Did it feel good? It felt good. I felt like I knew it musically. It's a weird thing though because now, looking back on it now, it's a period of my life where at the time all my friends thought I was fucking mental and I thought I had a plan. And retrospectively, everybody now thinks I must have had a plan and I think I was fucking mental because I can't quite get my head around what I was thinking at yeah. the time. Now it seems like a strange. You were decision. figuring it out. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm pleased to say, and I'm quite—I'll say it reasonably loud and proud. What I was doing was just following where music was taking me as an idea and doing what the right thing to do was 
Um, and, it, and it's funny because I think at the time people appreciated that. Retrospectively, because I've been successful with what I do, every now and again people go, oh yeah man, you know, you jacked in hardcore for something that would pay the bills kind of thing. Which fucks me right off actually because it's like, it really wasn't how it was at the time at all. Yeah. And, um, you know, the first few years of my solo career were pretty fucking bare. You know, they're, they're not now and that's great and I'm pleased for that. But like, yeah, there was some real fucking like hand to mouth shit. I mean, was, I mean, even you know if it was touring with Jonah you know Betranga or yes. like the Revival Tour like you were connecting with those yeah well that was older, the thing did, sort of, yeah. you were in that community definitely I definitely had a lot of moments of kind of running into people who I knew about from that time I mean me and Chris that party or whatever was one um, Jonah yeah Jonah actually was on tour with Million Dead and Feel for a Friend was how I met him because ah. Matt brought Jonah out to play solo and, uh, and I think that Possibly not consciously, but subconsciously influenced my decision to do what I did after Moon Dead was done because I'd seen him do it and do it well. Um, Jonah had such a, I don't know, just a beautiful way of bringing the room together. Yeah. And I just, I loved that about, yeah. yes, Far was great and all this stuff, but it's like he could really get yeah. everybody yeah, together. Yeah, definitely. We did a lot of touring and indeed just put release together. And then, um, but there was then, and I remember, yeah, meeting Chuck was a big deal for me because it was a big band for me. And then Tim Avail, he's a fucking love Avail, man. Uh, I love the. I love the last the, time I staged though was an Avail show. Oh, right. The, the <laughs> thing I love about Avail is at the time when the, the hardcore scene was very uptight and PC, it was four fucking drunk dudes who put a record called and Dixie. A, and a dancer. Yeah, and, and it was and just Bobo. like, oh my god, what the fuck is this? It was almost like masochistic. It was like, yes. And break my taboos. Rise, <laughs> rise. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't give a fuck. What Yeah, I did it as a joke initially, but the thing is, it's quite hard to have a logo as a singer-songwriter. Do you know what I mean? It's a weird thing. Um, and so I sort of did it as a joke, and then it's kind of really now taken on a life of its own, which I like. I think it's kind of cool. And there's a lot of tattoos out there with that, which yeah. which is now something I'm comfortable with, though. I went through a bit of a kind of, what the fuck, yeah. kind of, about that. But, uh, but yeah, it's fun. It, although it's funny, it was, um, uh, it's not in the artwork from the record, which is a genuine omission of just forgetfulness on my part and then loads and loads of people went oh my god you're trying to reject your roots man now that you're working with <laughs> one mistake records. and you get like yeah and it's killed. just like oh come on cut me a fucking break it's not like I'm not fucking doing stuff do you know what I mean it's not like I'm just sitting on my ass yeah um but um but yeah so I, you know I, the, the new record's out uh I, I sort of feel like I sort of slightly don't want to sully the, this interview. I feel like this has been a wonderful moment of talking about something totally different from what I usually talk about. But I, don't I feel want to feel like I'm paying the bills for it. No, no, it's all right. <laughs> I think, yeah. A really fun moment in half an hour of my life. Awesome. Something I never talk about. <laughs> well, Frank, thank you, and uh, keep. Keep the hardcore dreams alive. I will do. Uh, this has been such fun. Yeah. For evening, for the day to be done. And some summer days I hide away and wait for rain to come. Cause it turns out hell will not be found within the fires below.